Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And I was going around in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk at this time, going into stores, stealing. I went to jail, um, as is always the case when you're out committing crime. Eventually, your luck runs out. I was 12 years old. I'll be coming in at one, two o'clock in the morning. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Frankie Frank runs the My Cold Turkey Detox website, where he shares the story and updates about his struggle overcoming drug abuse, primarily heroin and crack. His sister filmed his struggle as he detoxed cold turkey at her place in Sweden after 30 years as a chronic long-term addict. Frankie Frank, not his real name, is now in his 40s, in recovery, and is our guest to tell us how, despite having fallen many times in the past, cold turkey detox does work for some. I've got three brothers uh, and a sister, all look considerably older than me, uh, about 13 years, 12 years. So they're older and they'd left home, so I was at home with my younger brother and mum and dad. Uh, My mum died of cancer when I was nine, so that was a a hard time to go through. Uh, My dad's an alcoholic. Uh, so he didn't make the best parent. Um, he didn't deal with it very well. So at this time in my life, I didn't understand what death was. I had no comprehension that I wouldn't get to see my mum again. And I felt quite angry uh, and quite abandoned. I was scared of my dad. He wasn't violent towards me, but he wasn't a nice person uh, when he'd had a drink. You were brought up by a mum that was mostly sick a lot of the time. Yeah, I didn't get to see a lot of her. She was in hospital a lot of the time. And when she was at home, she was obviously on morphine because of the pain. Um, If I'm completely honest with you, I have no recollection of my mum, no memories, not really. I think I've blocked that out. And I was young as well, and it was a really painful time. She was a big factor in my siblings' lives. They've all done well, you know, they're professional people, they have good jobs, good careers. But I didn't have my mum, and I think that's where things started to go wrong for me, because she was like the rock for us. So, yeah, she died. I didn't really know her. And then we moved. My dad moved us into a different area, a really rough area, uh, with a, a woman that he got with. They were both alcoholics. Uh, it was a toxic relationship in a toxic house. It was horrible living there. And they'd come back drunk, you know, biting physically, verbally. I remember, I think at this time I was probably 10. My memory's really hazy, but I, I remember a number of times lying in bed, pillow overhead, trying to get to sleep crying uh, because this woman would be mad mouthing my mum who she'd never met. I used to feel really guilty that I couldn't stand up for her. So I didn't like being in that house. That house was a a horrible place to be so I decided to spend as much time out of that house as I possibly could. So I did. I I started going out by about the age of 12, sniffing solvents, sniffing glue and sniffing gas with some peers but mostly on my own. How would you learn about sniffing glue and gas and what What does that do to your system when you do that? When I moved in with my dad and his girlfriend, uh, she had children too who were slightly older than me uh, by a few years. So they were into stuff that most 12-year-olds wouldn't be into because they were like 16 or so. So 
I had older peers. I didn't have any friends my own age. So I got into it through older people. You know, that's what they were doing. That was the area that I lived in, very poverty-stricken. A lot of broken families, you know, and a lot of broken children. Uh, And that was what they did. So I got into sniffing glue and gas, stealing it from the local hardware shop. And what that did for me was um, it just switched me off completely. I was no longer thinking about my dad or my mum or his partner, you know, or having to go back there. It was escapism, you know, it was not being who I was at that time in my life. When you compare sniffing gasoline and and paint thinner, what drug does that compare to as the same feeling? I've not taken another drug that's made me feel like sniffing glue, if I'm honest with you. Glue is something that is very hard to describe. I've not taken another drug that I could compare it to. But what I would say about it is I was totally out of control. I had no recognition of what I was doing when I was using glue. And a lot of the time, it would be just for the whole day. And before I would know it, you know, it would be nighttime and I would have been sniffing glue all day. And I would just literally be buzzing all over my body and my head swelling. Um, But it was a nice feeling. I know it sounds strange, but it was. It was better than feeling is this glue that you can get from the school or like just everyday glue that I would use to fix stuff around the house or? No, it's a strong glue. It's, um, it has to be a high, you know, high solvency based. So it was, uh, I mean, I don't want to mention brands and I don't even know if, if, if you know, but it's the super glue types that you'll get in the tub. It's the type of stuff that really would stink your house out if you used a bit of it in your house. It's very toxic. And I'd sniff gas as well. Wouldn't that give you like a horrible headache? It does at first. Yeah, it does. Um, it, it does. But um, it, it was better than feeling uh, how I felt. Yeah, it was just a different place to be. It, I didn't have to be me anymore. You know, I could be somewhere else and switch off. During that time, did you think of ever self-harming? No, I've never, I've never intentionally self-harmed. My addiction's taken me to do that on a, in a passive nature. But no, I've never done it intentionally. It got worse. Um, I used to go to school. I used to sniff glue at school. I used to sniff Tipex in class. And from about 12 onwards, it was every day. Would people notice? Would teachers notice? Yeah. I had, um, throughout my childhood, I moved backwards and forwards quite a lot to my sisters or to my dads. So I was always starting different schools. And I tended to get into a fight quite early on uh, because I'd be from a different area. So, you know, I'd get picked on or bullied. Uh, so I was labelled from day one of this school as being a problem child because I got into a fight on the first day, you see. So the teachers, were they knew what was going on, but they were happy to turn a blind eye, you know, and they contacted my dad about it and my dad wasn't interested, you know. He, he never went up to school. Um, he didn't have time to do that. He was too busy drinking, I guess. I had no boundaries as a child. I had no discipline. So back then when I was that age, it felt great, actually. It felt, uh, in one respect, like I could do whatever I wanted to do. When I look back with great respect, obviously, every child needs discipline and boundaries. But the school knew this, so they didn't really intervene, in all honesty. They were just happier if I sat at the back of the class and and, and didn't contribute. And that's how school was, really. Um, You know, I was high all the time at school. Uh, It progressed from solvent to cannabis, as as is always the case uh, for a lot of people. Um, And then I ended up... You know, I'd be smoking cannabis all the time, in, you know, in bongs and buckets, smoking it excessively, smoking it at school. Um, I'd been suspended by a couple of, in a couple of schools at this point for being 
intoxicated at school. And then um, I moved back to my sister's in Nottingham uh, because the school were going to expel me again. And social services had, had told my sister, if he goes back to his dad's, we're going to take him into care because of the problems that were going on at that place. Um, so my sister intervened. She actually kidnapped me. She came over with a partner at the time because she knew I wouldn't come. I, I wouldn't agree to it. Um, and I was pretty much bundled into the back of a van and drove to a different uh, city uh, because of the problems that I had going on in my life at that time. So I started another new school. Again, fights, uh, being labelled as a problem child. Because I was, you know, I was a problem child. I had a lot of problems, a lot of unresolved issues. Despite having a young daughter of her own to look after, Frank's sister took on responsibility for him too. 13 years older than Frank, she was a young, working mother who did the best she could for her younger brother and tried to give him a taste of what real family life was like. She was very strict. She tried to implement discipline and routine because I think that's what she thought I needed, and I did, I did. But um, I, I, I'd already had a taste of living life without boundaries at that point. None at all, you know. I mean, I was 12 years old. I'd be coming in at one, two o'clock in the morning. You know, I went to school if I wanted to go to school. If I didn't want to go to school, I didn't. And then it was a complete contrast of moving to a house, you know, a family house with rules and boundaries and expectations. And I didn't react very well to that. We didn't argue as such, but I didn't really take on board what she was saying. And I'd climb out the fire escape and go out the window at night, you know, and I'd get out that way. I was already doing what I wanted to do at that point because I'd been allowed to do it from such an early age. It had become a way of life. And it was still fun, as strange as it sounds. I didn't class myself as being an addict that day, at that point in my life. I, you know, it just seemed normal. What was going on in your sister's life at this time? Because you said she was a young parent. So what, what was the challenges she was dealing with on top of a younger brother that's, you know, a rebel? She'd been divorced. She'd been fighting for custody of a daughter. She was in a new relationship. Um, they'd bought a house. Uh, they were financially under an awful lot of pressure. She was working all the hours God sent. Um, didn't get to see much of her. Uh, not through her choice, just because... Uh, in the house that I was living in with her, there were two adults and they were five children. What do you mean five children? Okay, back up here. So she had a child. Yeah, and her partner had three children. And then there was me as well, who was older than the others, but still a child. So there were five children in the house. Are they still together now? No, they're not. Um, they were together for about, I think, and my memory's terrible because of drugs, but I think 10, maybe 15 years. This person, her partner, was a um, you know been a major player in my life. It's also the same person who, who helped me get out of the country, um, who I had a meal with yesterday. You know, we still have a relationship. But uh, yeah, so um, I, uh, I was living with them. I had a very strict relationship with my sister and a completely opposite relationship with a partner. So as a result of that, I, I tended to get on with a partner better uh, than I did my sister. Because uh, my sister was kind of like in, in a mother's role, but of course she's not my mum. And she's inexperienced, you know. She's never had to deal with anybody like me in her life, ever. And, and, and I was a little shit. I mean, I really was. You know, I got up to a lot of stuff. And I, I remember, I, I think I probably got into injecting speed when I was about 14, 15. Went through an older peer, you, you know, in the rave scene, in, in, into going around the country raving. Um, so by this point, I, I had gone from sniffing solvents to smoking cannabis and such to injecting amphetamines. How would you get access to these drugs? Like, how did they even become available to you? They're all around, especially in cities. And because of the nature of the person that I was and because of what I, I was already doing and the way I was living my life, I was in contact with these people anyway. 
So it's, you know, they're not hard to find. And, and at that time, I was into taking pretty much anything. I didn't even realise I had a problem. I thought it was fun. I, I, I just, you know, I genuinely didn't realise where I was going to end up as a result of the, the decisions that I was making. Uh, my sister did. Uh, my best friend at the time, who I'm still in contact with, he went and told my sister that I was injecting heroin out of love, out of concern and care. Uh, not heroin, sorry, speed, which I obviously, you know, I denied. And then um, I'd had enough of being questioned by my sister and uh, being given boundaries. So I left. 14, 15, um, I decided at that point school wasn't really for me, if I'm honest. I only went to school never to learn. It was always to get high and to have a laugh. It was more of a social event uh, than anything else. And because I had a reputation for being who I was at that time, uh, which was not you know, a nice person, but I used to have a laugh. It was like um, I had a label to live up to and I was somebody. It gave me an identity, someone other than who I really was, you know, someone who was confident, someone who was at laugh, somebody who got into fights and won. So it was the complete opposite to who I felt like inside. It was quite addictive and that was what I missed. Um, so I wanted to go back to the, you know, where my dad was, uh, which is what I did. I got into a relationship with somebody when I was 15. I think she was 23. She used to buy me, you know, my substances that I wanted uh, and needed. Uh, she got pregnant. I lied about my age. She didn't realize how young I was. It came out. She was pregnant. She was scared of uh, being accused of being a paedophile, which would have been unfair because I had lied and I did look older than I was. And I didn't go to school uh, and I wasn't your typical 14, 15 year old. I'd matured quite considerably in the space of time that I'd had in, in many respects. So there was no reason for her to doubt my age. I ended up in her eventually finding out and leaving. She just up and left one day um, with my child when she was pregnant. Did you ever think at that time the whole relationship was odd? I mean, you were so young. And do, do you have any traumatic memories from that? Do you think? I mean, I was too young, uh, you know, and I shouldn't have been getting into a relationship, you know, uh, with an adult uh, when I was a child, of course. But I was receiving love uh, and I crave that. I'd not had that. And I had a family, you know. It, she had two children. It was everything that I'd always wanted but never had and didn't think I would get. She was more like a mother to you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Looking back in retrospect, um, that's, I think that's what I was looking for, a mother figure. Yeah, I didn't realise that at the time. Are you still in contact with her? Obviously, because you share. Well, if I'm honest with you, when she left, I didn't um, have contact with her again until probably three years ago. I didn't know where she was. I tried to find my son. I couldn't do. She changed the names, had moved. So there was no way of me making contact with her. That happened actually recently, about three years ago. But yeah, we split up. That's when I was about 15, I think. Maybe just nearly ready to turn 16. And I decided then, you know, unfortunately for me that maybe uh, dealing drugs was the way forward to make some money so that was what I decided I was going to do so by 16 you're like I have no money my girlfriend is gone with with my baby and I know so much about this world already did you feel already you were kind of an expert in how it worked yeah I did I did I was very cocky as well um, I, I felt very confident I was quite a big bad I was quite thick set um, and I felt that I, I could do it and I had the contacts to be able to do it, you see, um, which made it so easy because uh, that's the life that I was living. You know, um, I've only really scraped the surface, uh, but there was a lot going on um, and I was in contact with a lot of undesirables. 
So by the age of 16, I was in a hospital uh, for the homeless. I met my daughter's mother in there and uh, I decided uh, I wanted more than a hostel. I didn't want to live in a hostel. You know, I wanted a house. I wanted some money. I wanted some possessions. So I decided to sell speed because at this time I hadn't uh, ever used heroin. I just used everything but heroin and crack up to this point. So I started selling speed. You know, I made some money from it. But of course, I had an unlimited supply. So I ended up being addicted to amphetamines uh, for about a year and a half. Got a bit psychosis, really went off the rails. My mental health suffered massively because I was doing days, sometimes a week without sleeping. I was hallucinating. And uh, the way that I got introduced into heroin was, um, I think I'd been up four or five nights on speed. I was selling it. And uh, a prostitute, a working girl, she offered to swap me some heroin for some speed because uh, she said it would help me to get to sleep. I knew what heroin was. I knew the name of the drug. Um, I'd always decided I'd never take it, but I decided I'd never inject drugs yet. I was doing that at 14. Um, so I decided I'd give it a go. And it helped me get to sleep. And that was my first introduction into heroin. So uh, things progressed from that uh, quite rapidly over the course of the next year. I managed to get into a lot of debt with my dealer. I was threatened with a gun. I had to leave the city. I had to disappear uh, because I'd spent all this money. I spent it on heroin at this point. You know, I had a car, a motorbike, jewellery. And at the beginning, I wasn't a heroin addict, so the drugs were free. So I had money. What what kind of money could you make at 16 as a drug dealer? It's really hard for me to, to, to put a figure on it because it's such a long time ago. The value of the money doesn't mean the same now. But what I do remember is, you know, I had a really expensive motorbike, I had jewellery, I had expensive clothes, I had, you know, big TV, big uh, uh, video player, it wasn't DVD then. And I had uh, money in my pockets and I had as much drugs as I wanted to and I wasn't dealing in little amounts, it was what we would call weights. So the money was there, so I kind of built my credit up with the dealer, which meant I could get more and more, which was obviously when I ended up using heroin uh, and that took hold of me. I ended up getting into a lot of debt with him. He was a big player. You know, I knew this was somebody you don't mess about with, so it was time to to leave the house. So, yeah, we had to leave, me and my uh, ex-partner at that time, uh, the mother of my daughter. She got pregnant uh, when we'd left. Uh, We were heroin addicts at this time. I decided that uh, we needed to stop because we were going to have a child, you know, and I had the problems with my first son and I didn't want to repeat the same pattern. So we stopped using while she was pregnant, uh, or not completely, but uh, it, it was sporadically. It wasn't often. And um, my daughter was born. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast will continue in a moment. Just wanted to quickly let you know about a way that you can help support what we do here on the Stand Up Speak Up podcast, and that is to leave us a quick review on iTunes. Doesn't cost you a cent, but it does help us grow our audience and reach more people. We're doing quite well on the iTunes charts now, so thank you very much for listening each week. And to leave a review, all you have to do is click onto the Stand Up Speak Up page on iTunes. We hope you'll give us a five-star rating and leave a sentence or two about why you enjoy the podcast. And of course, we're always open to suggestions and ideas for guests as well. We're always listening on Facebook at Stand Up Speak Up Podcast. Now, back to Frank's story. Having moved again, Frank and his partner were living close enough to her father, who offered Frank a job as a laborer. As young parents, they decided that for the welfare of their baby daughter, they would stop using heroin. 
They were trying to do the right thing, but good intentions aren't always easy to live up to, especially when you're an addict. So, so that was going well, and then um, it's really hazy for me to remember, but we, we ended up uh, using, we were both addicted on heroin. We had my daughter, um, we were obviously not very good parents, tried to be, but um, as functioning addicts, not being an addict doesn't make you a bad person or a bad parent, but being an addict definitely means that you don't put your children first. And I didn't put my daughter first. Drugs came first. But unfortunately, that's the reality and the truth of the situation. Drugs come before everything and, and anyone for me. And my ex-partner at that time, she'd always had her drugs through me. Um, I'd supplied them. I'd go out stealing. So she had a drug habit like me, but I would be the one responsible, if you like, for both of us and both of our habits and you know I went to jail um, as is always the case when you're out committing crime eventually your luck runs out I came out of jail and um, my memory of the situation is is my ex-partner at that time she'd put my daughter in social services under their care and um, she'd gone into prostitution because she had no longer had me so she had to fund her own habit so that was the decision or, or the path that her addiction took her to I got out of jail I sort myself out, I went for custody of my daughter, I went through the courts, went through the legal process. I was clean at the time, then I started using uh, as I was going through the process of the courts. I doctored the urine tests, I faked the results. Eventually I managed to get custody of my daughter and looked after her as a single parent for about a year and a half. But in retrospect, I should have not fought, fought for custody of her, but I believed in myself and thought I'd stay clean at that time. And then near the end of the process, when I started using again, it was too late. I was committed. I had a relationship with my daughter. I was busy to know with having, you know, unrestricted access. I'd always had a relationship with her, and I, you know, I thought it would be better if she was with me. But I relapsed again when I had her. Like I say, I had her for about a year and a half. I did some terrible things, you know, take her out shoplifting with me in a pushchair um, because it looked better and there was less chance of getting caught. You know, I've done some really bad things. Uh, you know, and, and I'm just scratching the surface, but eventually my daughter was uh, taken off me. Uh, my sister had a hand in that. She was doing what she thought was right for my daughter, which was right, and it was the right thing to do because I was not a good parent at that time. I was a heroin addict, a single parent, uh, stealing and trying to support myself and my daughter, and, and I wasn't doing a very good job of it. Um, in fact, I was doing a terrible job of it. So she went into into the care system. Uh, she was adopted. Luckily for me, uh, the lady who adopted her, we had a good relationship. She allowed me to continue contact with my daughter, even after she'd been adopted. I went into rehab, I think, for the first time when I was about 20, into private clinic that my sister got me in. And by this time, I've got a really long criminal record. I've been in jail a few times. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a real mess. I'm, I'm wanted by the police. I'm wanted by dealers. My life's totally unmanageable, um, spiraling out of control. Uh, so I went and did a 12-step program in a rehab. I think it was a six-week program. I completed that. Went into what we call assisted living afterwards, which is like a dry house uh, with support. I went to there after, but I met my, my partner of over 20 years whilst I was in a rehab. Uh, I met her there. She was in there for alcohol problems. I was in there for drug problems. Uh, we didn't have a relationship in rehab, but we became friends. Uh, eventually, I left the assisted living and I moved in with her. Uh, she'd lost custody uh, of one of her sons. He was in social services. Um, I was clean. She was clean. Uh, we were doing well. Life was good. 
I put her in touch with my solicitor before for custody of the child that she'd lost, which we got quite quickly. So then I'm with my new partner and she had two young children that aren't biologically mine, but I am dad for all intents and purposes. I brought them up from when they were, you know, three and six. Um, so they were only children. And I relapsed. I couldn't stay clean. I went through different periods of clean times, getting clean and then relapsing, getting clean and relapsing, which put a strain on her. So she would sometimes drink. So um, the children, they didn't realise anything in terms of my drug use because they were too young and they were under the impression that dad went out to work when in actual uh, fact dad was going out stealing, sorting himself out and then coming back in the evening uh, trying to make it look like I was going to work. So I wake up in the morning and I, I don't have a plan. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but I assessed the situation as, and this is really bad, um, but I looked at what can I get the most money from for the least risk? What's the less jail time uh, with the most financial reward? And I decided that professional shoplifting uh, was the way forward because the sentences for shoplifting in the UK are not severe, but the rewards can be quite big if you're getting expensive items. So I would quite regular walking through department stores. I'd pick up four TVs in the boxes with the handles and I'd, I'd just walk out. I'd jump on a push bike or in my car or whatever vehicle I had at the time, put the tellies on the handlebars and I'd ride off. That was something that I've done hundreds of times because TVs are expensive, especially now smart TVs. are very easy to sell. Back then it was any electrical items. Um, it was aftershaves, you know, going into stores filling up a basket full of the most expensive aftershaves and just walking out, but always making sure that I looked clean. I'd always do my hair before I went in. I'd make sure I had a clean coat on. Even though I looked in my face like a heroin addict, I would try and make myself look half presentable so it wouldn't arouse suspicion. And I, I would do that throughout the day. I would probably... Oh, it's hard to, to explain, but my, my life was steal something, sell it, score, find somewhere to use, steal something, sell it, score, find somewhere to use. And that would go on all day. Uh, sometimes it would go on all night and then all the next day and then I'd crash out. Um, but it was constant. I was stealing every day, all day. Um, I, if I'm honest with you, um, I was a, probably a one-man crime wave. Um, I had to move cities uh, because of the amount of stealing that I was doing. Um, I was being picked up on the camera systems. I you know, being chased by the police. I'd never been caught for the crimes that I was doing um, because I always made sure I had a, a means of escape. I wouldn't just walk into a shop without first having had a look at it and thought of the, the exit route that I was going to take, which was the quickest way. So that's what I was doing, and I was doing that every day, all day. And I was making a lot of money from it, but of course, I wasn't making any money. I was making drugs, lots of drugs, and taking copious amounts of heroin and crack at this time. And that was a typical day. Um, for me. Uh, I've done other crimes as well, uh, commercial burglaries, businesses. As strange as it sounds, I, I wouldn't want to rob somebody's house. Uh, it feels too personal. But I justified businesses as having insurance in my head. I, I, I didn't care, if I'm honest with you. The need to score far outweighed uh, any worry that I might have for repercussions or for the victims or even for getting in trouble. Um, it's about living in the now. And the now was always about scoring or getting money to score. Uh, so that's how I was living at that age in my life. Um, and then I think what changed for me was um, 
one day my partner sat me down at the table uh, she broke down and uh, we had a mortgage on a house that was in her name at the time that we were not, not able to pay uh, she broke down and said we're going to lose a house we can't afford to keep it uh, she had we had the two children and my young my youngest son hadn't been born at this time um, she had not yet caught pregnant with him uh, and I, I remember she was in a mess and I just felt some I, I can't explain it, but responsibility to put it right. And I realised what was happening to the children is exactly what had happened to me. And everything that I said I didn't want to be and didn't want to do, which was my dad, I was actually a mirror image of him. Um, in actual fact, I'd done much worse things than my dad's ever done in terms of like legally. Um, so I was a worse parent than him, yet I'd always promised myself that I was going to be a better parent than him. Um, so when she broke down crying, saying, we're going to lose a house. I said to her, I'll have a job tomorrow. Um, of course, she didn't believe me. I've made many promises and told many lies in the past. Um, and I did. I got a job. I went and registered at an agency. I was already on a methadone prescription at this time, um, but I was using on top of it, as I always have done. I got my, my first methadone prescription, I think, when I was 17. So I was very well known by drug services. And I got a job. And I went and spoke to drug services and told them that I wanted to do it properly. Um, uh, I'd failed many times in the past trying to come off methadone. I've done other detoxes by now. I've been in jail. I've come off methadone in jail. Um, it was always after I would relapse or before I'd finished doing the detox on the methadone. I would use because of the sleepless nights and just because of feeling like shit because a methadone detox seems to go on forever. Um, so we agreed an invisible reduction, which basically means he'll continue to give me the same amount of liquid, but reduce the strength of it. I said I didn't want to know when I'd stopped taking methadone. We agreed that she'd let me know six months after I'd been clean. Um, I took methadone for two years at that time, but in actual fact, it was 18 months because for the last six months, it had been nothing. There was no methadone in it. Uh, it was a placebo effect. Uh, and my drug worker come to the house and she told me you've been clean for six months from methadone. Uh, so that was the beginning of a new life for me because that was the first time in my life ever that I'd actually been clean from everything and anything. So at this point, I must be, oh, I can't put an age on it. I'm 42 now. I'm going to say I must have been maybe 30 uh, or late 20s. And I was clean. I had a family. Uh, I had a new son, my youngest. I had a nice house. So how, how many kids would, do you have in total? Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, 
and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. So biologically, I have three children that are biologically mine, um, but including uh, the two children that I'm not the father of, but uh, five children, but three that are biologically mine. That's two sons and my daughter, and then two sons that uh, are adoptedly mine, uh, taking my last name. And if we go back to some of your times, you know, because you, and I understand why you skipped through a lot because it's so much there, but what are some of the memories of things that you experienced or did that, that still haunt you, that still create a lot of anxiety in when you think about it? Now, I have no relationship with any of my children, okay, as a result of using, uh, which causes me a lot of anxiety. Um, slowly start to build a relationship with my youngest son. If we're going to look back retrospectively, at what are, the, are you asking me what are the worst things I've done? Yeah, like what are the things that you just think, how did I let the addiction lead me down that that path and do those things? Uh, an example of that, and I've got many, um, and we could be here all day, but um, I've been hospitalized a number of times due to my addiction. Okay, I had a septic arthritis in my left knee from injecting drugs into my groin, uh, heroin and crack. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move. The pain was immense. So before I could go out stealing to get more drugs, I had to make sure that I went to sleep with enough drugs to wake up in the morning with so I could take them in order to be able to move because I couldn't even get my jeans on. My knee was that swollen. And I knew it was something bad. But of course, the desire to use was more important than going to the doctors or to the hospital. So this continued for a while. I didn't realize this, but it had then progressed to septicemia, blood poisoning. And I was going around in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk at this time. I was in a wheelchair stealing, going into stores, stealing in a wheelchair. And then eventually I had to go into hospital uh, because the pain got that immense. I, I can't describe it. It's indescribable, but it was constant pain. No, no amount of heroin and crack was taking the pain away now. So I went to hospital. I had my knee drained. Um, I was prepped for surgery. The next day, obviously, I woke up and I'm, I'm, I'm ill. I'm rattling. I've had no drugs. Um, I've got pipes all in my body. You know, I ripped them out. I left the hospital. Uh, I went and scored, knowing full well that I had blood poisoning, knowing full well that it could kill me because the doctors had already told me the stage that it had progressed to. It was serious. I knew it was serious anyway. I could feel it. I knew inside uh, something was wrong. Uh, but the desire to use was far more, much more compelling uh, than getting well. So I left that hospital that time in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk. I got on the tram on the wheelchair uh, and I went straight off to school. I continued using for about a week, uh, straight back in hospital again. Bearing in mind at this point, I've got the police looking for me and the hospital going to addresses, contacting anybody who knows me. Said basically, you know, including my partner saying he's going to die. He's got blood poisoning. He needs to come back. Um, it's not a game. This is really serious. And I went back to hospital again. This time I made sure I took drugs with me so I could use whilst I was in hospital. 
So that's one example of where my addiction took me. I've been in hospital more times than that. I've always self-discharged. I've never completed treatment. Uh, even after I got stabbed one night you know, by a drug dealer that I'd ripped off, I had a collapse along a couple of broken ribs. How many times have drug dealers um, physically attacked you? A number of times, but it's been in one respect my own fault. I, um, I used to rob drug dealers sometimes because they had a lot of what I wanted and I didn't look at them as victims. Uh, I justified it to myself that it, that's part of the lifestyle that they live in. So it's happened a number of times, but I knew it would come. I knew it would happen. I knew that there would be repercussions, but so such was the grip of my addiction. I didn't care. I, I was living in the now. I wanted what he had in his pocket and his money. And, you know, there's only one way to get that off him. You're not going to give it to me. Uh, so I'll take it from him. Um, so I, and this is why I moved around a lot because any area that I lived in, I abused it. You know, um, I was there for one reason really, and that was just to survive. And surviving for me meant getting money to school by whichever means I could. When when I had a when my lung had collapsed, uh, this is such the grip of the addiction had over me. I, I was in hospital. I had a drain a pipe coming out of my chest. I had a container that had to stay on the floor. Uh, in order to let all the fluids drain out of my lung. And um, I got on a wheelchair with this pipe sticking out of my chest and the, the container between my feet. And I got on the tram and I went and scored. And then I'd come back to hospital afterwards. Um, and I did that throughout my stay at the hospital. Uh, and the staff knew what I was doing. You know, I said I was going out for a cigarette and I'd come back, you know, and I've, I've, I've used. I had a, a cannula in, in, in my hand, you know, where they give you the antibiotics through. So I, I would uh, inject my drugs through that. I've been to some really dark places. You know, I've lived on the streets. And I mean, lived on the streets, as in I've not had anything other than the clothes on my back and nothing else. Um, I've done a lot of bad stuff. You know, I've lived a very hectic life. But how have you survived that? I feel like how many times were you at death's door where it just, you should be dead by now? Yeah, I should be dead. I've, I've watched a lot of people die, that I know, through addiction. Um, I think partly all of my family have got a very strong constitution. We're all very physically strong. We're all very big. So I think partly I have a strong body. I think that saved me on a number of times because the amounts of drugs I was taking, I've always been the person that seems to take more than everybody else. I've, I've, I always have the highest tolerance. So I think partly is luck that I have a strong body. Uh, and, and, and I think mentally as well I mean it's obviously affected me but um, I still have my faculties and I think I survived it because that's what I've done all my life is I'm, I've survived I've not had a life so to speak of it's, it's been a struggle I've always survived and I think that same is the same for addiction you know it, it, it was survival it wasn't a life it was an existence you know for heroin addiction and being in kind of a numb zone would that not make you so vulnerable for people beating you up, trying to hurt you, steal from you, treat you badly? I mean, how exposed are you? I would say, if I'm honest with you, when you, or for me personally, I shouldn't say you, but for me personally, when I was in active addiction and I was at my lowest, um, I had no self-respect whatsoever. I had no fight left in me. So I would allow people to do things that I wouldn't allow them to do if I wasn't a heroin addict. Um, so 
I was very vulnerable. You know, I have been robbed as an addict. You know, I've been stabbed. I've been cut with a Stanley knife for drugs, you know, for people to take my drugs. So it, it is a very vulnerable place to be, but that's part of the lifestyle, um, unfortunately, you know. I, I've, I've had it where I've been, you know, living on the street, sleeping rough. I, I remember one time being woken up to someone just booting me in the back of the head. I don't have that fog. It's why. I've got no idea why. Probably just because I was lying in a shop doorway, you know, in a sleeping bag, if I'm honest with you. So you are very vulnerable, definitely. And on top of that, I lost my ability uh, to fight back. I didn't have any fight in my stomach. Like I say, it numbed all my senses. I didn't have any respect for myself. If somebody ripped me off, for instance, not that I'd given them the option to, but if that did happen, I would normally let it go rather than get into a physical altercation because my body was broken. But that's the complete opposite to who I am. Normally, if I'm not in addiction, you know, I wouldn't allow somebody to do that to me. Um, so I lost the ability to speak up for myself or to stick up for myself. And I, I was very vulnerable. I've been in some really bad situations where I could be dead as a result of addiction and living on the streets. What were some of your worst memories? I remember once having a, uh, you, you know what pool is, shooting pool, um, you know, like snooker and pool. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, the balls have like a velvet bag over here in the UK. I had one of them put over my head. I was bundled into a car. I was taken into a cellar. I was tied to a chair. Um, I think there were four people there. I can't swear because I couldn't see. And I was beaten with pool cues. I had a gun stuck in my mouth after that. That was a, a very scary situation to be in. I don't know if it was a real gun, but it felt like it was, you know, and I was frightened. Why would they do that? Because I'd not paid a debt off the, the drugs that I owed. You know, this was over £50, this was, you know, um, so probably $80, I don't know, $90. But they felt I was taking the piss because I'd run up this very small debt with them. Uh, so they uh, wanted their money. Um, and I'd avoided them because I owed them money, you know, because obviously being an addict, if I'd have had the money, I probably still wouldn't have given it them, if I'm honest with you, because I wanted as much drugs as I could get. You know, they caught up with me eventually, um, as has happened lots of times, you know, um, it's, this isn't unique, this is quite commonplace. But that was a situation that I find myself in um, as a result of drugs. I also got stabbed in Nottingham when I got clean not long ago, I had a scar on my chest. And I got my that punctured my lung. Um, I was found by the police unconscious at the side of the road. This is within the last two years, uh, just before uh, I went into rehab uh, and relapsed. Uh, and that was because, again, this was a drug dealer. This was uh, somebody that I owed, I think it was about £500 to. Um, I'd managed to work up quite a big tab, if you like, with this person, because initially I was working and I had a lot of money. I had a nice car, I had jewellery. So this person would see me and I wouldn't look like your typical heroin addict um, because at this moment, at this point in time, I hadn't lost everything, um, but uh, I owed him £500. I remember going down late to school one night about half one in the morning um, and just by pure chance, him and four of his mates just happened to bump into me. Um, and as you can imagine, that was a, a, a shitty situation to be in. I just remember being set on by them. Um, one of them stabbed me while I was on the floor. Uh, you know, um, and, and that was awful because I couldn't breathe. The, the beating itself, I, you kind of get numb. It was the thing that scared me was I knew something bad had happened because I couldn't breathe and that's because my lungs had been punctured. So, I mean, and, and they're just snippets. You know, this is something that I was regular, regularly kind of getting myself into. And it was my own fault, you know. it's. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, these people shouldn't be acting that way, but I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing, you know. 
of taking the drugs and not paying for them. Um, I've, I've been in some really bad situations as a result of drugs, if I'm honest with you. Um, but it's usually been as a result of my own actions um, because I've spiraled way out of control. I had no self-control whatsoever. I'd go to any lengths in order to get my fix. How would you have gotten to the hospital after that happened? Like, how did you not die in the place that they left you? Well, what happened was, was um, they left me at the side of the road. I did try and get up and try to walk to where the hospital is. I collapsed, I passed out, and pure luck, police car happened to drive down this road, which isn't actually that unusual because it's a really hot area for drugs. It was about half one in the morning, so the police will often drive up and down this area. Uh, and I was lying in the road unconscious. Um, so the police phoned an ambulance, you know, uh, and that's how I ended up in hospital on that occasion. While Frank has managed to stay alive, there are others he was close to that haven't been so lucky. Addiction took them in one way or another, and his ex-partner is one of those people who just couldn't handle life anymore. She committed a suicide in jail. She was still in active addiction, and it got too much for her. So my daughter, she lost her mum to suicide through drugs in jail, and she lost her dad to drugs. So she just never was able to ever to get clean and when she went to jail was it what drove her to the suicide was it she couldn't handle the detoxing life got too much or the honest truth is she'd been to jail a number of times i don't think she ever got clean she knew the system inside out what i believe but i don't know i I can't you know i don't know this for a fact but i believe that uh she was probably uh in debt probably expecting to take a visit to get some drugs into the jail, which didn't happen for whatever reason. And I assume the consequences of that was something that she probably didn't want to have to deal with because I know that the person who brought the the drugs into the prison on the visit got caught and that person also ended up in jail. So I think it was a mixture of her then partner getting caught bringing drugs into jail to her, him getting a custodial sentence and the fact that she didn't come through with the drugs into the jail because he'd been caught. Um, And the way the jail system works is is a very real chance that she could have been in debt or there could have been people uh, waiting for these drugs. Um, And I think it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Um, But yeah, she committed suicide. What did that do to you when you found that out? Um, At this time, I'd not spoken to her for probably 15 years or 20 years. it was a long time that we'd not had contact for. How did I feel? I felt sorry for, for my daughter. I didn't have a connection with her mum anymore um, and hadn't done for a long time. And I am a very, I wouldn't say I'm unemotional, but I try to, to block stuff out. So I didn't dwell on it, if that makes sense. I'm not good with feelings. I think that's one of my, my defects of character. I don't like feelings. So I, 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 I just blocked it out. I didn't want to think about it. And I didn't have a relationship with her, you know. I had not spoke to her for a long time. I was more concerned for my daughter's welfare at that time. And what, how did your, how was she dealt with all this? Uh, my daughter, she's, she's okay. She, she works. Uh, we were in contact a few years ago uh, when I come out of rehab last time. But I only lasted after rehab, I think, three or four days before I relapsed. We were in contact uh, then rebuilding our relationship but again of course I've let her down again because I relapsed you know two years ago 18 months ago whatever it was so for her how's she coping with it right now the honest answer is I don't know we're not in contact 
you know, that's something else for the future. What you have to understand is, is I've been clean before and people have seen me do well and then I've relapsed. So I really need to get to prove myself in some respects and to get some time behind my belt um, before I can, not that I can expect anybody to listen to what I've got to say, but I definitely wouldn't listen to me at this moment in time. So what, you three months clean? You were 10 years clean. It's not a guarantee. So we're not in contact at the moment because I don't think that's the right thing to do for her or for me at this moment in time. Um, But we will hopefully be in contact. I hope so. I mean, that's a plan. Do you think connecting back with your your child a couple of years ago started you to perhaps go to relapse? Was it a lot to connect? Right, because you just connected with your son, right? Like a couple of years ago? Yeah. What happened was on the relapse, so so, so basically I, I got clean on this methadone prescription. I was clean for 10 years. I got myself a career. Uh, I progressed quickly in a company. Um, I had a well-paid job. You know, I had a mortgage, a house. Everything was great. I had children. I had a lovely life. And I was living life clean. And then I got bored. I, I got bored. I got bored of the same job. Uh, I think I had a midlife crisis. I was around 40 at the time. Um, and my children started leaving the house. They were growing up. They were getting older. Um, I felt very sorry for myself, like I wasn't any, like I wasn't needed anymore. So I got into a bad space mentally. I didn't share it with anybody because I, you know, felt like I was the rock of the family, and you know, I had to keep everything together. So that was the beginning of my relapse. And also, I was in contact with my daughter at the time. That's a strained relationship. Um, I have a lot of guilt around that, as you can probably imagine. So I had a lot going on at that period in my life, and that was the beginning of my relapse. Uh, two years ago, I think it was. And and this relapse has been the worst that I've ever been. Um, And I've been bad over the years. Um, But this last two years, um, it nearly killed me. Um, I'm very lucky to be alive. Uh, And I'm very lucky not to be in jail. You know, I was in court the other day and I'm very lucky that I'm still out of jail, to be honest. I've got a lot to be grateful for. So let's talk about your, your last relapse. What did that look like? As you said, you had a you had a great job. It was, yeah. It was a it, uh, uh, yeah, uh, a business analyst. Yeah, it's a it is a stressful job. It's working with data, but I really enjoyed it at first. How is your brain able to do all that analysis with so many years of drugs? Well, <laughs> that's a really good question. Actually, um, I've always been very good with IT. I've always liked taking computers to bits and building them. And I am the sort of person with an addictive nature. So whether that's drugs or employment or education, if I find something that interests me, that I find challenging, I'll put 110% in. And I knew that when I started this job with this company, um, they were going to fire me because of my criminal record, uh, because my criminal record is, is really bad. So I knew when I went there, I needed to work really hard. Uh, for three months and impress them and then tell them the truth, which is what I did. And then I progressed. So I've got a lovely job and a lovely career. Despite making significant strides in all areas of his life, it didn't take much for Frank to lose his way again. In fact, it was a chance encounter with an old acquaintance that brought things crashing down this time. However, with the financial security of a well-paid job, he was able to feed his habit with an intensity that he had never before experienced. And then this relapse, it started while I was still at work. I bumped into an old associate uh, who I knew who was still using. Um, Split-second decision, 
but I, I'd already relapsed prior to this in my mind. I think I'd not taken the steps that I needed to take to keep myself well. Um, so it was it was a ticking time bomb, and I bumped into somebody. We ended up around his house. Uh, we used. I paid for it. Uh, that was the first time um, I managed to keep that what you would call recreational, if the such thing exists, for about a month. So I'd do it periodically every few days. I was only smoking it. I hid it from my partner and my children. Nobody knew what I was doing. I had a lot of money. I didn't have to explain, you know, where money was being spent. And then um, after a couple of months, I started using more. I started using crack as well. Um, and then I started using crack and heroin together. And the UK term for that is a snowball, doing that intravenously. After probably three months or so, I'd lost a lot of weight. Uh, I was using at work. I was using in the toilets. I was using in my car. Um, I was coming, leaving work. I was going to school. So I'm already back in full addiction, but I'm hiding it from my family. Uh, my partner suspected something. She didn't want to go through it again, understandably. I mean, she's been to visit me in prison in the past. Uh, she's always stuck by me, um, but she, she didn't want to go through it again. And, and I didn't want to put them through it again because I knew what was co- what was coming. I knew I couldn't stop. I was at that point where I'd hit self-destruct and I'd given up trying, especially after being clean for 10 years. Relapsing after that, um, it hit me hard. Um, and I just lost all hope and all faith. So I went at it 110%. Um, my ex-partner was cooking dinner, uh, Sunday dinner. I tried to do a, a detox a couple of times at home because I told her that I was using it at this point. I hadn't managed it. I kept going out and scoring after day one. I couldn't get through. And uh, I just got up and I just said, I'm leaving. And I did. I walked out of the house. And when I said, I'm leaving, I didn't, I hadn't comprehended what that meant. What I was actually saying is, I'm leaving you and the children. I'm walking out and I'm never coming back. I wasn't thinking about it on that level. I was thinking about it. I'm leaving. I'm going to go and score. Because, you know, I was ill. I was withdrawing. And after I'd, I'd scored, the guilt from what I'd just done, having walked out on my family after what I'd said to my partner, uh, that hit me really hard. So, of course, I used again. And it, I still felt guilty, so I used and used and used. And very quickly, I ran out of money. I sold my car. I'd been on the sick for work. Six months, they'd stopped paying me. So it was back to thieving. I had no uh, possessions. I'd stolen off my family. I'd stolen off my children. I'd taken money that wasn't mine. Um, so I'm I'm back in full-blown addiction after having been clean for 10 years, uh, and I'm worse than I've ever been. How is your partner dealing with not having as much money? Because you probably had a pretty good lifestyle with two incomes. So how is she surviving yeah. with less money? Well, she's struggling. Uh, she does work. Uh, she works hard. She used to get a, a decent wage herself. But of course, you know, when I was working, I was the main breadwinner. Uh, so that money stopped coming in. Uh, having said that, when I left, when I was still getting paid from work on the sick, I used to give her the wages uh, uh, for her and, and my children for the mortgage, you know, and, and, and for food and stuff. And I would just take a few hundred quid of it because I knew that I, what I was spending it on. And by this time, I was already stealing. So I knew I had a responsibility. Uh, otherwise, they'd lose the house that they were living in. Um, so the wages while I was on the sick helped for a while but of course that stopped after six months um, and she's had to cope financially on her own because I've not been able to to give any assistance. Has she lost the house? No, no she hasn't. Uh, she still has the house, she still works um, but money's very tight. 
yeah, money is very tight. And I'm in a lot of debt, you know, and there's a lot of debt at that address as a result of my relapse. Uh, there are a lot of uh, complications and repercussions that I'll be dealing with for years to come. You know, this is just the beginning. Frank knows that the journey he faces is long and ultimately without end, as it is for any addict. Recovery is not a destination. It is an ongoing process that takes many highs and lows. This was the first of his two-part series, so Frank joins us again on the next episode to discuss his guilt, hopes, regrets, and the apologies he would like to give to those he has hurt. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-production, editing, and narration by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.